A while back, I came across this book called Book of Ages, The Life and Opinions of Jane Franklin. When I saw it, my eyebrows raised, and I realized I'd never heard a thing about Benjamin Franklin's sister before. So many of us, both inside and outside the U.S., have heard about Benjamin Franklin's legendary career. He was a printer, an inventor, and a creator of the U.S. government. But I'm not even sure I was aware that Benjamin Franklin had a sister. As I read Jill Lepore's book and dove into Jane Franklin's life, I was completely drawn in by the realities that Jane's life brought to the surface. She married very young. She had 12 children. She spent a lot of her life trying to keep her head above water financially. And as a result, she started various business ventures to stay afloat. And she spent whatever free time she could muster to read and write. The overwhelming amount of domestic labor she had to contend with was honestly the story of most women of her time. But the reading and writing was something unique. As I thought about Jane's life, it struck me how many parallels there were between her life and the life of Abigail Adams, the wife of the second U.S. president. Abigail was more educated than the average colonial woman, but she was still kept from the same educational opportunities that boys and men would have been exposed to. She had children and domestic duties to contend with, but she also pursued and advocated for women's education, and she had a business of her own. Something that has famously cemented Abigail Adams' reputation as a bit of a rebel is a quote from a letter she wrote to her husband saying, quote, And by the way, in the new code of laws, which I suppose it will be necessary for you to make, I desire that you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no choice or representation. End quote. Mic drop. This quote alone has been a big piece of Abigail Adams' legacy, but of course, she accomplished a lot outside of this. And Jane Franklin's life, while different from Abigail Adams from the perspective of financial and political prosperity, was cut from the same cloth. And I wanted to dive into these similarities and what truths they tell us about women's lives then, and what truths they're still telling today. A while back, I listened to a fabulous podcast episode about Abigail Adams, produced by Alicia with Civics and Coffee. She dove into so many aspects of Abigail Adams' life that I had no awareness of, and so I thought, who better to explore the relationship between these two women with? And so in this episode, Alicia and I will jump into a conversation about Jane Franklin and Abigail Adams, two women whose lives defied the undocumented silence of most women of their time. So buckle up, y'all. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. Okay, hello, broadly underestimated listeners. I have a very special guest with me here today. This is Alicia from Civics and Coffee. Hello there. Hi. <laughs> welcome, welcome. I'm so happy and excited you're here. I'm so happy to be here. I love your show. So this is great. Thank you. I love <laughs> yours. So Alicia has a fantastic history podcast called Civics and Coffee. And I love the concept because the idea is that she dives really well into really fascinating historical topics in the amount of time it takes for you to drink a cup of coffee. So in honor of your podcast, I have my own cup of coffee today. Hey, hey. So <laughs> I uh, decided to do tea because I um, have a smaller cup and it's actually a Abigail Adams cup, which may prove press, you know, may, may prove nice during our conversation today. And so I was like, well, I'll go for tea. Well, how very appropriate. That's very nice. How cool. <laughs> well, I'll just take a sip of my cappuccino. <laughs> Your coffee posts on Instagram make me so jealous. I mean, if you want to come live with me, come on in. <laughs> just to like make you coffee and take pictures exactly. for you. You yes. bet. Yes. You bet. <laughs> Which is hilarious because my husband was a barista. So, you know, I know I, you know, 
Sorry. I have so many questions. I mean, <laughs> maybe for another day, but I have so many questions. <laughs> um, but yes, I feel that, um, you know, sharing warm drinks with others is just a way to share love. So yes, anywho. Um, but I actually would love for, you know, if you want to take a second to talk a little more about your podcast, because I do think it is so great. You have really talked about such a huge span of historical events and topics. Um, and kind of for this topic, you know, the reason I reached out to you to talk about, you know, the women we're about to discuss is that I noticed, you know, you talk about a huge span of history, but you have such great episodes about this time period as well. But anyway, please, you know, riff away about your podcast and how great it is. Oh, well, thank you so much. Uh, so, so nice for you to say all of that. Um, yeah. So civics and coffee, really the idea came from wanting to get people interested in the history, but also realizing that adults have lives and especially, um, those who may are, maybe are not super into history, but maybe just want to learn something, you know, fast facts. Um, I decided, you know, I want to, I want more people to be interested in history and this, you know, the idea for civics and coffee came up in 2020, which was a very historical year for a plethora of reasons. And, uh, in conversations with a friend of mine, he mentioned that he just couldn't stand history. And I immediately was like, challenge accepted. <laughs> <laughs> Because I would talk to him about history all the time and, you know, he would say, oh my gosh, well, that's so fascinating. I didn't realize that. I'm like, exactly. So civics and coffee really was born from that conversation of how do you get adults into and interested into historical topics? Because, you know, I, I think uh, learned historians would always say they hate this phrase, but people that don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I, for one, feel like it's very, very true. It has, it has lots of answers to it. So, um, yeah, so the, the idea that I like is every week I dive into a topic and I try to hit the high notes and, and get people more fascinated. You know, if somebody walks away from an episode and they go, gosh, I want to know more about that. Then I feel like I've done my job. Um, there's obviously a plethora of podcast history podcasts out there that go into deep, 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 deep dives. Um, but, um, I don't have a production team behind me, so <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> short and sweet and to the point. And, you know, you can enjoy your morning coffee or your morning commute while listening to uh, a little bit about American history. I feel like that serves such a huge amount of people. I, you know, I'm a history nerd just like you, but so many of the people I know and my friends also enjoy history, but they have a sort of threshold for it. And yeah. I also feel like oftentimes, unfortunately, high school and college uh, history classes can sort of ruin people's, you know, potential love for history. Yes. It's not always the teacher's fault. Sometimes it's the curriculum. Maybe it's both, you know, who knows. But unfortunately, that can sort of cut off a potential love of history at the past when there's so much more and so many more ways you can go about it. And your podcast consistently goes into things that I'm like, oh, I thought I knew about history and I really didn't know about that. So I'm grateful for it. I think oh, it's thank great. You. Thank you. <laughs> so, I appreciate that. Um, but I do think that's a great segue into our topic for today because a while back, so I listened to your podcast about Abigail Adams and it really, as I was kind of doing some reading of my own uh, about Jane Franklin. So today we're talking about Abigail Adams and Jane Franklin, Abigail Adams being the wife of one of our presidents and Jane Franklin being the sister of Benjamin Franklin. Um, as I was learning about both of these women, I saw such clear connections between their lives. They were very different women. They lived very different lives, but there were so much crossover. It was really overwhelming to see. Mm -hmm. And your podcast episode about Abigail Adams was so thorough. It was so personable. Um, and so I thought it'd be a really great, interesting and tie in to talk about both of these women together. Um, how did you, like, what inspired you about Abigail Adams just as a starter for who she is and why she's cool? Um, why did you want to talk about her? Well, I knew when I started the podcast that one of the things I really wanted to focus in on was obviously the things that everybody knew, right? I, I feel like a lot of people understand the Constitutional Convention. Everybody knows George Washington was the first president. Um, but, you know, there's not been a lot of attention paid to the first ladies. Um, you know, Abigail is one of the ones that is most well known, but there's still a, 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 a missing piece for for. First ladies. Now, obviously, that is partially due to the times, right? There wasn't a lot of push or emphasis to capture women's voices 
they weren't educated for a very long time, so on and so forth. Um, and so when I approached Abigail, I was trying to figure out what, what can I say that isn't already known about her, right? A lot of people know about her infamous quotes, remember the ladies, right? And most people know that she was the wife of a president and hopefully some also know that she was the mother of another president. Um, and so I discovered this book. I want to say it's by Woody, Woody Thompson. I have the name wrong. I'm sorry. I will, I will look it up. Um, but I found this biography um, about her and he really focused on talking about her as a businesswoman. And I had no idea that she ran her own business. I just knew that she was opinionated and strong and forceful. And that's enough of a reason for her to be cool. Um, but to know that she owned her own business and operated her own business. And so I dove into that and I, I thought, okay, well, that's kind of my, that's what I want to talk about. You know, everybody knows that she's the wife of a, of a president, but maybe they don't know that. Why, how did she become so confident? Um, and that book really highlighted how having that business uh, separate and apart from her husband allowed her to have her own identity. And that is so rare for women in this time period that um, that's what made me fall in love with it. I just love her. Uh, and like after, you know, learning the things that you were just speaking about, which we'll get into in more detail. Um, I didn't know this. I was shocked and I felt the same thing. I thought this woman was able to have something of her own and it helped her strengthen her own identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think kind of where both of these two women's stories begin really starts there, which is that there is this tendency for women to be defined by their relationship to the men in their lives, right? This yes. is a fairly commonly known idea. Um, and with these women, you know, kind of on the surface, that's exactly what happens with them. Abigail Adams is kind of known for her relationship to her husband. Jane Franklin is known for her relationship to her brother. Mm -hmm. And in Jane's case, um, you know, there's not a ton known about her girlhood, her adolescence. And when we start to know more about her, it's because some of her correspondence with her brother was preserved. And typically, you know, even sort of more of like salt in the wound, it's that actually his correspondence to her was saved. And mm -hmm. so we can extrapolate from that what she must have been saying to him. Yep. And that's just like the pain. <laughs> um, but the, a similar thing happens with Abigail Adams. I remember in your podcast, you said specifically that there's really not a lot known about her life until she gets married. Yep. Yep. And it's because it's, it's very similar to Jane, right? You know, we know about her through her correspondence with her husband, her soon to be husband and then eventual husband, John. Um, we, we know some, some bare facts about her. You know, we know that she grew up in with her uh, father who was supportive of education. He had a small library. Uh, we know that she was a sickly child, um, which prevented her from even the, the small amount of education available to women at that time. Um, but luckily, you know, she was fortunate in the sense that she had a parent, uh, parents, actually, her, her mother and her grandmother were also pretty forceful in, in education, um, who supported that. So supported her reading, supported her learning a little bit. Um, but again, as a woman, she's not going to have any contracts that she's going to enter into. She's not historically going to have anything that would necessitate preserving of a record, right? Um, and we're very fortunate with John Adams that he kind of had his eye on on history and, and knew that he was kind of living in very uh, historic times and that the, there was going to need to be a record. And um, oddly enough, you know, I think he was he was probably one of the a few who did this is that he decided to preserve those those correspondence with his wife. Um, so many of the men and the women actually uh, ended up destroying the correspondence between you know themselves and their spouse. So we we and by 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 that nature, right? We don't know enough about the women. You know, Elizabeth Monroe is a is a very perfect prime example of this. You know, there's such little information out there about her. And we know or we believe that after her death, her husband, James, decided to burn their correspondence. And so that would have been the only way we would have had a little inkling into who she was. And so now we have to kind of put it together through other people's observations, which, you know, removes removes the humanity from them, I think. A lot. 
Yeah. I mean, my soul is, I'm crying in my soul. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, but this is, you know, a consistent theme and we know, you know, correspondence is an important and very, can be very private thing. And we know that a lot of famous people like Benjamin Franklin, his people would get a hold of his correspondence and then publish in the newspaper. I mean, happens today too. Yeah. Um, and so you can understand why people would think I'm sharing personal information. I want to burn this. I'm preserving it so I can go back to it and read it if I want to on the live, but I don't want other people to see it. Um, but it really is a shame. It's such mm-hmm. a shame. Um, and we, you know, in terms of education for both of these women, it's so wonderful that Abigail Adams had a couple of women in her life who were really pushing her to get whatever education she could. And it's interesting because in Jane's life, you know, she wasn't sent to a school there at her, you know, there wasn't a school for girls, you know, during her time. And um, she's a little older than Abigail Adams, but I don't believe a whole lot changed uh, during their growing up years. And uh, there is a line in the book that both of us read. So Book of Ages by Jill Lepore, which, you know, she's a fantastic historian. And um, she was able to piece this story together. You know, it felt like out of nothing, but of mm-hmm. course there was material. She just really had to get creative about putting that material together. Uh, but she did say that I may, you know, mess up the exact line, but she talked about how Benjamin Franklin taught Jill, Jill, Jane, how to, uh, how to write and how, you know, most women at that time really weren't taught how to write much. Uh, many mm-hmm. women couldn't even sign their own signature just as, as a, sort of a baseline. Um, but he taught her how to write and that by doing that, it was actually a bit cruel in its kindness because he would teach her and then he eventually moved. He was older than her and he moved out of the house uh, at a fairly young age. And then mm-hmm. all of her lessons just sort of stopped. So now she knew what she was missing. Yeah. Um, and in their correspondence, you know, Benjamin Franklin was able to learn a very sort of formal style of writing and, and a bit more standard uh, practices in terms of spelling. And she didn't have this. And so in her letters to anyone, she was constantly making excuses for her writing and her spelling. Yeah. It was, yeah, she, she lacked that confidence. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, writing to Benjamin Franklin during that time period anyways, I think would be intimidating because the man created his own alphabet. So, you know, obviously a very learned man, obviously a very intelligent person. And, you know, I, I think as she grew older, she, she grew more confident and more comfortable in, in her writings. But um, yeah, I, I think it's, it was, it was a blessing and a curse, right? Because she, she, pursued education on an understated basis because Mm -hmm. she, she didn't have that opportunity, right? The, the only schools that were, you know, potentially available, they would have had to pay for. And even then it would have been very, very basic, right? I think Jill Lepore made a very good point about saying that really the woman or the female's education growing up was learning how to be a housewife, learning how to stitch, learning how to cook, learning how to do, you know, the basic household chores. And so with Jane getting a little bit with, with, with her brother, Benjamin, yeah, I I agree. It's, it's devastating in a sense because she knew, she knew to a certain degree what she could have. And I think also that's probably why she globbed on to everything that he ever wrote, right? Because that was the only way she felt like she was going to be able to take this adventure with him. She very much had to live, you know, her life through, through his eyes and through his experiences and through his lens, which is again, very, you know, it's very depressing. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I mean, and especially as we get into a little more of the details of her life, it's like, my gosh, it seemed like in so many ways, this was sort of one almost escape or outlet that she had to hold on to um, in that sense. But I do, you know, as a correction, you know, there were schools that girls could go to, but just as you touched on, you know, they weren't public schools and um, the schools that were at least accessible to a lot of students, there were very specific subjects taught to girls versus boys. And so Mm -hmm. when the boys were learning to write, the girls would then go to a separate space and be spinning, right? right? So they'd be spinning wool and, you know, that's just so frustrating. They were right there. <laughs> but, but you know, that's why we also see this huge gap in information, silence in the archives, right? These women um, not only had issues with having the time and energy to be able to, uh, to write and things because they were doing a whole bunch of unpaid labor in their homes, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but then on top of that, not having the skills or confidence to do that as well. Um, but I know that in terms of confidence, you had mentioned uh, kind of in your materials that Abigail Adams always sort of struggled with confidence surrounding her education as well because of yes. her perceived lack of it. Yes. Yeah, she definitely. Uh, and, I, and again, I think, too, uh, she, to a certain extent, she was like Jane with with Benjamin. Right. You have 
John Adams, this, you know, very learned, passionate man who was fighting for the freedom of this new republic and, and on these committees to create a brand new government. I mean, just thinking about that, I'm, I feel very intimidated and I have a college <laughs> degree, so I can only imagine <laughs> what she feels like. And, you know, I think, I think, and I, I made a point to talk about it in my episode that I did about her is that I think having that business, having that little side hustle to use today's phraseology really brought her a sense of confidence that she would not have otherwise had, right? Women were very much tied into, and I think we've said this, um, but, you know, women were very much tied to the men in their lives. They were the wives, they were the mothers, they were the caretakers, uh, they birthed the children and wrote, you know, raised the children. Um, and so I think anything outside of that, it wasn't okay for, for women to have separate identities. It wasn't expected. It wasn't accepted. And through having this business, you know, she was always feeling a little, you know, um, much, you know, she knew she was lacking on the educational front. And, and, and I think with, with that experience in the business, she shifted it instead of, I'm not going to worry about my education. I want to worry about the education for the future. And she used her relationship, bless her, with her husband to say, you need to support education for the women. You, this is, this is ridiculous. This, this is something that we need. You know, you want us to raise good, strong, capable men. Well, how do you expect us to do this if we can't teach them? And I thought that was such a very like chef's kiss way to, <laughs> To, yes. to put, classify that, right? You know, it's, um, you know, we're here. My role is to be the mom and to be the caregiver and to be that, that, that guiding light for our children. And part of that means we want our, our young boys uh, to be very smart and intelligent and capable young men. Well, they need education to do that. So shouldn't we start with the women, which I thought good, good on you, Abigail. Good on you. Amen. Amen, sister. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, and I think, you know, to kind of catch up sort of Jane as, as well with kind of where we are with Abigail is that, you know, both of these women got married relatively young, which was, mm -hmm. you know, how it was done. Jane mm -hmm. got married, you know, much earlier than average. But to your point of these opportunities they had, I find it interesting in both of these women's lives that their business opportunities that they had, Abigail's was certainly on a much larger scale and much more successful than Jane, but both of them at least attempted these things. But both of those were born in the absence of the men in their lives, right? So to kind of fill in the gaps with Jane, she got married very young. She had many, many children. Um, she gave birth to 12 children in her life. She actually lost 11 of them at various times in their life, some in infancy, some in childhood, some in adulthood. And Abigail Adams, I believe she had six. I think so. I think that's right. <laughs> I believe it's six. I, th um, I think Jane was 12 children over 20 years and Abigail was six children over 12 years, I think. I just found my notes. So Jane was 12 children. Oh yeah, that, you're right. It's over 12 years and six over 12 years for, yeah. uh, for Abigail. So, so that's just, it's a lot of pregnancies. It's a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. um, that's just a lot for a human body to take. Um, so it's, you know, I think that just as a sort of side rant of my own, I do think that, you know, women who have children and kind of what an ordeal that actually is for your body and for your health and for your mental health and everything. I think that we, uh, we just brush over that because it's been done for so long. And, um, these women went through a lot to have and raise their kids. And, and then on top of that, we're trying all these other things as well. So, you know, props to them. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, so Jane had all these kids. I think that, a big difference between the two women though, um, and you can, I'm sure fill in the gaps for Abigail specifically is Jane was not well off. Mm -hmm. Um, Jane's husband was consistently in debt. He was, it seemed like he was not the best guy. Um, <laughs> and he seemed, he didn't seem like a supportive husband. He was constantly getting them into trouble. There would be debt collectors coming to their home, um, just taking, you know, items and they didn't have very many items to begin with. So she was always struggling. And mm -hmm. at some point her husband did pass away. And so she was a widow and just sort of left on her own to take care of the rest of her kids that were at home and to try to just figure things out financially. Um, but for Abigail, um, you know, given what I do know about her, I'm assuming that she, it was a little easier for her in that sense, because she could have at least hired some help, had some assistance. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think you make a good point about saying, you know, Jane's husband probably wasn't the greatest because <laughs> I think Jill Laporte, it's what's not said that mm -hmm. speaks volumes, right? You know, um, in, in her book of ages, which is what the Jill Lepore book was, was called when talking about uh, Jane, um, 
Franklin, she lists out all of her, her marriage and births and deaths. And she mm-hmm. has all these pretty beautiful epithets to her children that die. I mean, she gets a little bit more flowery with the, with the, her daughters than she does with her sons, but she doesn't really say a whole lot about her husband throughout this whole thing. Right. And I think she says something along the lines of, you know, God took him and put him out of his misery because he had a a terrible, a terrible life, (laughs) which I think, okay, that says everything you needed to say. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I, I agree with you. Jane definitely was a matter of force. She had to do it because her husband, for whatever reason, just could not keep them in the black, always was struggling, always going into debtors jail or always hiding from debtor's jail. Um, whereas yeah, Abigail was much more, um, you know, wanting, I think to carve out her own identity and, and, you know, help support her husband in, in this financial sense, right? Because John Adams, he was a diplomat, so he wasn't getting paid a whole lot of money. Um, and during this time frame, we're talking pre-revolution, revolutionary time. So 1770s. Um, yeah, she just, she needed to, to find a way to, um, kind of make her own identity. And so I think, and it was much to his chagrin initially, you know, John Adams was not necessarily on board with Abigail kind of having her own side business. Um, but he came to rely on it to the point where when she did make kind of a misstep with her, with her finances, he kind of uh, chastised her. And I said, wow, well, how the, how the tables have turned. You mm. went from not wanting to, you know, support her in this and kind of wanting to oversee it and be the buyer and be the go-between to being like, you know what, never mind. You do this, you got this to, oh, you made a poor investment. You made a mistake. How dare you? How dare you be so foolish? Um, and so I think, yeah, they, the, for Abigail, the money became a way for her to exert a bit of autonomy, right. And separate herself from her husband, uh, which was again, very different from most women. Most women couldn't even get into any kind of real business opportunities unless they were a widow or unless they were single and they were expected to give it up as soon as they got married. Um, and Jane, you know, her, her experience born out of necessity and something, you know, she had to give up when she was able to find other ways of making money, right? She, she was like, oh, okay, now I have borders. Okay. Now I can do that to, to put food on my table and to pay the debtors prison and all of that. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's amazing. The experiences of the two women was so similar, but yet born out of, of very different needs and, and, you know, Abigail didn't give it up. Whereas Jane kind of had to, right. She was in, I think it was millinery. She was trying to do stitches and stuff like that, just as everybody decided they were going to boycott British goods. So, um, whereas Abigail still found a way to, to make money. So very, um, interesting trajectory. Well, I think it's actually really, uh, important to sort of dive into that a little bit because both of these women were trying to take take advantage of a similar opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the lack of ability to get certain goods in the United States. Well, not the United States yet, but not fully, but, <laughs> you know, uh, trying to get it uh, kind of as the revolution is going. And um, so they both have contacts in England, right? Mm-hmm. So both, you know, Benjamin Franklin is in England. John Adam is, is in England as well, correct? I believe so. He was in England and I think he was also in Spain mm-hmm. and France. Okay. Yeah, he traveled a bit. So overseas, right? Yes. And they had access to these items, right? So Jane asked Benjamin Franklin to send her some millinery, some fabrics, some um, ribbons. And she was planning to take advantage of that contact that she had and then to, you know, make things, sell them. And this was her big business idea. She was hoping that this is, was going to be the thing to kind of pull her out of the trouble she was in. And Abigail Adams did the same thing, right? She contacts her husband, says, hey, please send me this stuff by, you know, by the the trunk load. And unfortunately for Jane, the items that she had been wanting to sell, she received them. And shortly after those items were boycotted. So she had a whole lot of supplies and no one to buy them. Yep. And well, and even uh, Abigail lucked out a little bit because John was willing to send things, you know, through people and and kind of skirt the costs of of postage. Whereas, you know, Benjamin Franklin trying to be the the dutiful citizen and and not mm-hmm. uh, not wanting to seem as taking advantage of his position uh, would always, you know, not not waive the freight costs. And so she even had to go into larger debt to try to have this business to try to you know, make something for, for herself and, and her family. Um, so, you know, she just, she had, she did not have the greatest of luck, poor girl. <laughs> she really didn't. I know you just feel so bad for her. <laughs> you know, another point with this, that's interesting and important as well is 
the idea of coverture, which you've talked about. And I think that's, it's, you know, a central point. And why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the idea of coverture was that everything belonged to the husband. So a, a woman wasn't able to have a separate identity uh, it, it, once she got married. And so everything became under the, the husband's name. Uh, There's another ep- episode that I did about uh, another woman earlier on, and she very much fought against coverture because she kind of got burned her first marriage. Um, but yeah, so, you know, knowing and the difference, I think, between, again, Jane and Abigail is Abigail, though, in 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 law, everything belonged to John. She very much was of the opinion that that was her money and she was going to do with it what she wanted. And uh, there was even, I believe, a part of the book um, and it's Woody Holton. Now that I remember. Thank you. My, my memory. <laughs> It was Woody Holton who, who wrote the book on Abigail, um, where she kind of dangled, you know, hey, I can give you this money for this investment property that you want, but this is what I'm going to need from you. And that, you know, Jane would never do that, right? Jane was like, I need this money. I need to pay the bills. Um, and so even though legally uh, that money technically belonged to John, I think uh, Abigail very much asserted the fact that, yeah, no, it's not. That's not yours. I did this work. I plan this out. I've been collecting the debts. I've been managing this. This is my money. I'm keeping it separate. Um, and you know, again, just another reason to love her. (laughs) Yes. Yet another. What's interesting is, so she's got sort of this textile, it was pins, I believe that she was selling from, uh, from, I believe coming straight from England or somewhere in Europe. Mm Um, and then on top of that, she's, you know, making a big profit. Eventually she's investing that money. sounds like she's got properties and probably other investments. Um, and then after that, she's wanting to get into some kind of debt collection, right? After the revolution, that was a whole business in and of itself. And she's wanting to get into that. And if I remember correctly, her husband was really not into it. Yeah. Um, and I think part of it was, uh, she had invested in war bonds, which, um, he was worried could be seen as, you know, that they were kind of, um, government representatives that they were kind of like betting on, on the country. Um, but she, she kept doing it. So rock on sister. Um, but yeah, so she, he was nervous because of the fact that their money, the monetary situation and the monetary policy of the government at that point was so in flux. They didn't have, you know, um, they didn't have any hard money reserves. There was nothing to back this stuff up. And she held a lot of money in, in federal notes, if I remember correctly. And he was very worried. And this is actually what why he ended up uh, kind of chastising her a little bit was she held on to some of those federal notes and they soon became worthless because they switched monetary policy. And so it wasn't a lot of money, but it was enough to give, you know, to earn the ire a little bit from from John. And so, yeah, she began to, you know, extend credit to a certain extent to friends and family and was uh, very much able to to kind of oversee that she became fairly successful at it. So, um, you know, a couple of missteps here and there. But other than that, yeah, she she did a pretty good job. And I think, you know, too, um, just highlighting and contrasting the, the two lives of these women, you know, Abigail could afford a little bit of, of missteps, right? You know, because though he was a diplomat, he was also a trained lawyer. And so there was that, you know, that potential for extra income, whereas Jane, unfortunately, did not have that option, right? You know, her, her husband was constantly going into debt um, and, and she had so many children she had to care for and then eventually grandchildren that I can just imagine the costs associated with that. <laughs> Yes, just it seems never ending for uh, for both of them, but especially for Jane. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that it's really interesting to see these parallels where at some point Abigail is collecting debts, well, lending and then collecting debts, and Jane just herself can never really get out of it. She's just she's mm-hmm. constantly on the other end of this of this whole cycle, uh, as hard as she may try. And there's a huge juxtaposition between Jane and some of the men in her life, not Benjamin, but, you know, her husband and some other men who, um, appear to be a bit lazy and just without a lot of direction. And Jane was so the opposite of that. She was constantly working hard. She was driving away at these business opportunities. They just didn't always go the way that she'd hoped. And of course, as opposed to some of the men in her life, she wasn't not all the same doors were open to her. So imagine what might've happened with kind of how smart she was and how driven she was, what could have happened for her. 
Yeah. Well, and you make a lot, uh, you make a point of this a lot on your, on your posts on social media about this unpaid labor. Right. And as I was reading the book from Jill Lepore and thinking about her life, had we assigned a monetary value to that unpaid labor? Because I mean, for 20 years, she did nothing but birth and raise children. Um, and even to a further extent, right, that was kind of her main source of income when she was when this millinery business didn't actually work out. And, um, and then she was trying to make soap with the family recipe of, for soap. But she took in borders. And so again, taking that, that mothering and that caregiving that should be paid for and should have some sort of monetary value. Um, you know, that was part of the reason why she also struggled, which was, you know, again, so unfortunate that we don't, we don't put the price that we need to on, on this labor that is so important. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's what it's kind of the backbone of society, right? Like just sort of keeping our, our homes going in, in whatever, you know, whatever they look Mm -hmm. like and whoever's in them, right. Just keeping it going is a lot of work. And, you know, she had 20 years of giving birth and raising, uh, her own kids. And then after that, she's raising her grandkids for various reasons too. Right. So this was decades upon decades for this woman. And I'm sure she loved her family, but that's, it's just a lot of labor. It's a lot. Definitely. Well, and I think too, you know, she, um, she lived kind of the, the analogy of women's expectations during that time, right? It was expected that women would do nothing but birth and care for children. It was expected that they would be the constant caregiver. Um, and though I think you could tell from the very limited correspondence that we have that she really would have wanted something different for herself, um, you know, even Lapore, I think, makes makes a comment in in the biography that she, because Jane married very, very young, that it's believed that maybe she was pregnant and that she miscarried and that the really, the only reason why she got married as young as she did was because, you know, of, of kind of societal expectations. Um, and so I, I, with, I'm with you in that what ifs of history of like, what would have happened had they just you know, Benjamin and Jane just been swapped, right? Because I, we talked about this in kind of our our first meeting of, they're very similar. They are very similar. And though she might not have had the the formalized education with, as, as Benjamin did, she was very intelligent. She was, she had that desire to learn. And what is, you know, what is anybody but you know, people that are, are educated are because they want to be educated. They, they really fight for their education. And I think again, because she was in a, a time and a place that they just didn't value women's education, but that didn't take away from her innate intelligence. And I think she demonstrates that in the little that we know about her. Exactly. I completely agree. I, in terms of her personal evolution, I think there are a couple of things to touch on and to kind of go back to your previous point, where she was living the life that was sort of expected of her in terms mm-hmm. of caregiving and, and having kids. And I think that the link between her and life today is that where the problem lies is when it's an or, right? Plenty of women want to have kids, fine. Plenty of women don't want to have kids, also fine. But I think that if women decide to have kids, it shouldn't be, unless this is how they exactly how they want it to be, because there are some women who want this, but you know, it shouldn't be, I I can have kids or I can have, you know, whatever other pursuits it needs to be an, and it's an, and for men, it should be an, and for women. Yes. And she wasn't given that choice. Exactly. Uh, yeah, when I 100% agree. And it's, uh, it's uh, unfortunate that it's still so per- pervasive this day and age. I, I feel like we're making progress, but mm-hmm. it, it's a slow, slow grind. <laughs> yes, it is. It feels so slow. And I, I mean, you know, this lack of an and, right? And so, some, so much of it is systemic, right? It's not just, you know, necessarily interpersonal relationships and, you know, between men and women or, or partners. Um, it's often systemic and does it make sense? You know, does it make sense financially? Uh, because sometimes the and doesn't actually make sense financially and it should, but it doesn't, right? Childcare, for example, can be so expensive, even if you're working full time, um, et cetera. So yeah. that's- well, And I think too, that that speaks to a lack of representation uh, top to bottom in all of the places that where the decisions are made, right? Um, not to not to quote the Hamilton musical, but you know, the room where it happens Please is do. usually- <laughs> I am wearing my Hamilton shirt too. 
um, you know, it's, it's very much, you know, where the, the room where it happens, the, the boardrooms, the legislatures historically predominantly been overwhelmingly male and they've already figured it out. Right. So they don't need to think about childcare costs. They don't need to think about education. They don't need to think about, uh, the costs associated with raising a family because they've already figured it out for a sense that works for them. They don't need to worry about reproductive health care rights. You know, these are all things that they've, they've got it. They're good. Right. Um, and so historically, you know, women don't have a, a seat at the table and haven't had a seat at the table for a very long time. And I think you see that when women get a chance and when women have that opportunity to, to have that seat, overwhelmingly, it turns out to be in the better for everyone involved, because unlike historically speaking, most men, um, women are responsible for thinking of the entire family. They don't get to think of themselves mm -hmm. first and then family. Mm -hmm. It's what's good for the family. What are we doing for the family? And I think they take that into the boardroom. They take that into the legislature to figure out, okay, we have the systemic problem. How do we fix this? for everybody. They lift, lift the whole, the whole boat. So yeah. to speak. Instead of one group in the boat. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Not to say that, you know, men don't ever think of anyone else, but obviously, you know, kind of what's happened in the past sort of does, does uh, have a pretty clear message. Mm -hmm. um, I do think also that it's pretty clear what can happen when a woman is the room where it happened adjacent versus mm -hmm. not right. So we have Abigail Adams, who yes. was close, right? She, we know she wielded a lot of influence and she was even criticized for that, right? But she was, you know, very involved. She was very intelligent and she had the access and most women didn't have that. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why she's so well-known and respected now, right? Because she's one of those, um, you know, uh, shining examples of a woman who was not afraid to speak her truth and not afraid to push that boundary line where so many other women didn't, or, or, you know, they, they just were kind of disregarded. And to a certain extent, you know, John did kind of poke fun at Abigail and kind of laughed her off and said, Oh, you're so cute that you think that we need to care about the ladies. Um, but you know, there were a couple of examples throughout their very long lives and marriage together that, you know, he showed up for her um, and said, okay, all right, I'm, I'm hearing you. Um, now, was he as forceful, of course, as we wanted, wanted him to be? Well, no, but that's, you know, we're, we're putting 2021 uh, expectations on a man. <laughs> um, fairly progressive for, for his time period. So um, yeah. And I think that's, again, just a, such a nice contrast and, and dichotomy between Jane and Abigail, right? Jane didn't have, I mean, Benjamin Franklin, very important and um, influential man during his time period, but it's a different relationship between brother and sister than it is with husband and wife. It just is. Um, and I think he was very much more a philosopher and a thinker and a scientist, whereas John was very much a doer and he's going to go in and make legislation. He's going to create a government um, and having that, that relationship and having that in right. Very, very important. And I think that's, that's been repeated throughout history, right? Um, you see, you see the women, kind of right behind the men whispering in their ears. Um, actually you should probably try this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Over and over. And we'll just, you know, I would feel comfortable saying that that's when the good decisions are made. I mean, um, me too. <laughs> so just throwing that out there. Uh, but with Jane's relationship with her brother, I completely agree, right? That's going to be a very different relationship than, uh, you know, Abigail with her husband. And also, it, it's just a different relationship altogether, right? Jane and Benjamin were very similar. They, that's why they got along so well. It seems like of all the siblings within that family, they had this really unique and special bond, but there still was this sort of even subconscious barrier where Benjamin wasn't taking advice from her. He was offering advice to her. Right. And, you know, we've talked about her, you know, you and I separately, but we've talked about her, evolution, you know, mm -hmm. Jane's evolution from, you know, over the course of the years, and especially as she becomes more independent, when all of her kids are out of the house, and she's got maybe some grandchildren, but they're around and they're older, and she's not actually, you know, full on raising them. She finally gets some time to explore herself. She's got the time and, and she's reading and she's actually ending up recommending books for Benjamin Franklin to read. Mm -hmm. 
which I absolutely loved when I saw mm-hmm. that. And he took, and I think, um, you know, he took her suggestion seriously and he looked it up and he wanted to read it, which I think speaks to the amount of respect that he had for her. Yes. Um, you know, I know he didn't necessarily mention her in his biography and, and his general writing, which, you know, we both have an issue with, but again, I'm feeling salty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to know that, you know, he, he took her seriously enough to say, you know, my sister has been reading for all these years and she's recommending that I read this book. I need to go ahead and read this book. And I think to your point too, you know, not only were the kids grown and the grandkids grown, her husband was gone. I, I, I dare to say, cause again, it's, I'm hypothesizing because of the lack of, of information, but I hypothesize that she didn't feel like she could be her true authentic self while being the wife of Edward mm-hmm. Beacon, right? Like she mm-hmm. had to kind of um, make herself smaller to fit into his world. And I think in her, her elder years being free of that, you know, she became much more forceful in the letters that she had, right. She wasn't always focused on apologizing as she was early on in her life. And she was not, you know, asking Ben for stuff to read, but sending him recommendations. And I think, you know, having that freedom and that autonomy just really helped drive her evolution as a person. Completely. And also something that helped her throughout her life, even though there were periods where you sort of sense this almost just exhaustion and sometimes sort of like frantic, just trying to fit it all in. Mm -hmm. She tried to read as much as she could. And the idea of access even to books is, you know, a whole other conversation, right? Because books were expensive and she read more books than by far than the average, you know, colonial woman would have seen in their lifetime. Yeah. Uh, and she was very proud of her library. And that was her way of exploring the world beyond herself mm-hmm. uh, because she just didn't get the same opportunities, even as Abigail. Right. Yeah. And, you know, um, when talking about these two women and the education and, and how they approached advocacy of education of women very differently, right? Um, Jane was understated and she lent out her books and she lent them to her female friends and family. And I thought, oh, that's so great. And kind of like um, a, a, an underground railroad of sorts for, for education, like read this, you need to read this, you need to, to learn about this. And, you know, Abigail was very much She's going to put it right there for everybody to see. She's going to write to her husband and say, you need to go to this female graduation of education. You need to support this. Um, And just, again, such an interesting dichotomy of circumstance forcing your hand and and giving limiting your options on how you can attack a certain subject or, or advocate for something that you believe in. Mm-hmm. But with that said, I believe that their, their stories really tell such a broad story of women of their time, just different outcomes, different circumstances, but they're both getting at very similar themes in their lives. And it's really incredible, all the through lines in both of their lives, even though they were just so different. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. I think um, when I got your, your email and you're like, oh, let's talk about Jane and Abigail. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so great. That's such a great idea because, you know, well, again, very different circumstances. They grew up relatively in the same time period, the, the revolutionary period. And as you've mentioned, Jane was a smidge older than Abigail, but, um, you know, both kind of in the same area, they both had men who were very important in their lives, kind of doing this monumental task and work of creating this new government and advocating for this new government. And I can't even imagine the kind of brain power that that would have taken, but, um, you know, but also their experiences, though different, so similar. You know, Abigail was, uh, you know, was really a big proponent of education and was luckily in a situation where her grandmother and her mother were fairly well educated for women of that time period. And her mother helped her with some very bare bone basics. And she was very lucky in the sense that she had a father who was supportive of these efforts um, and had a library and gave her the means with which to do some self-education. Jane, very lucky in the sense that she had a brother who was supportive of education for, you know, for women and, and helped her along. Um, Yeah. I just think, I'm with you. Like what, what could have happened had it been reverse, had the expectations been different. Um, and also too, I, in thinking about these two women, you know, Abigail, obviously we're much more lucky in terms of the dearth of information that's out there and available about her. Um, 
but how many women (laughs) don't we know about how many extraordinary individuals do we not know about, or only know a little bit about because there just wasn't the idea that their words mattered, that their opinions mattered, that their lives mattered. Um, And that was, I think we talked about that in a separate conversation of, you know, gosh, it's a little depressing to read this because it opens kind of opens your eyes to, to how much is missing, right? It's, we, we're, we're missing a bunch of information about some very key and important women throughout history. This really touches on something that I am really passionate about. And I talk about a lot, which is that I feel so strongly that women have been there just Mm -hmm. like what you said. It's not, you know, they haven't been as widely publicized as men, but women are always surrounding these things. It's just that their presence is not noted. It's not documented. And the story of Jane, for example, and the way that Jill Lepore talks about her actually, while sad, um, just given, you know, the really tough circumstances in her life uh, and the lack of documentation of her story, it's still, it gives me a lot of hope because it really shows a very creative way of piecing her life together. And otherwise, you know, if you didn't have, you have to go through so many hoops to put her story together and it's a lot of extra work, but it's possible. And I think, wow, how many other women can we put their lives together that way? That's really, for me, very encouraging. Yeah. And I, I love seeing how many women are so dedicated to telling the stories of other women. No, no, nothing against the men that are also doing this. Men are doing great jobs. Don't, don't get me wrong, Mm -hmm. but, um, it's, it's so different even, you know, when I was in college forever years ago, um, that every book I picked up practically was written by a man. And, Mm -hmm. um, this year specifically, even just every book I picked up seemed to be written by women about women. Um, and I think, that leads to telling a fuller story, right? Because we are aware that uh, women's stories and voices have been muted and not recorded and not taken into account throughout the hundreds of years. Um, Women get more creative and they figure out a way to, to share that story and to make it important and to make it personable and to make it tangible, whereas that historically hasn't been the case. And they're willing to take on the extra fight, right? Like Jill, a poor, poor girl, poor woman. She's not a girl, poor woman. (laughs) (laughs) You know, she, she put in her notes that it was a real daunting task to try to figure this out. And even in our kind of conversations outside of this recording, we were saying, you know, gosh, this is so great and so fascinating. And we know that this is not Lepore's fault at all, but gosh, we would have liked a little bit more about who Jane was, right? It was very much put in the context of the time. And we get that. I, I, we totally understand that. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to see what the future historians do because I think Lepore gave us a very good framework of a way you can explore women's history, even women's history that's not well-documented and still tell a, a compelling and amazing story about a, a woman who had a great impact. I agree. I mean, think about something that Jillipore talks on, which I talks about, which I believe is really important is this idea that history and historical stories that are shared widely are about the quote sort of greats, the famous people Mm -hmm. who make sort of big political impacts, um, which that's important to tell, of course. But what about the lives of what she calls the obscure? Right. Mm-hmm. Those people are making huge impacts too. think about the lives that Jane Franklin may have impacted by sharing her books with them. Mm-hmm. Who knows where that led? Right. What if that was, you know, a woman who ended up having a child that she taught or maybe she did something herself, of course. Right. But maybe she taught her children something which then had a ripple effect and et cetera. So, um, you know, the lives of, quote, the obscure are also mm-hmm. important. And the more that we can find out about that, the more we have a full picture of history and dare I say, this is the lie that history has told us. I think this is one of the reasons that, uh, that women are getting, you know, are becoming more to the forefront of telling women's stories that we have had this idea that women just haven't been there Mm -hmm. and we're finding more and more that that's just not accurate. And so the more that we can fill in the gaps there to help understand fully and tell the full story of what happened and who did what and who was where, uh, I think the better we're going to be moving forward, because I think that a lot of women have been limited, even subconsciously, by this idea that women haven't done this. Women don't do this. 
I 100% agree. And, you know, coming back to the start of our conversation in, in terms of the intent behind my podcast is I want to get people interested. And I was very fortunate in the sense that I had a very uh, hilarious eighth grade teacher for history, Mr. Lamb, who uh, very much put the founding fathers on a roasting pike and just let them have it. And, and not not to be detrimental to who they were, but just to pers- to personify them, right? To make them human beings. And I think you, representation, again, I always say this, representation matters. And the more that we hear about indigenous history, mm-hmm. women's history, minority history, mm-hmm. immigrant history, the history of the stories that you don't know all about, the more people will get interested in the in the field. And we need that. We need critical thinkers. We need people that have that that context, that that broad view in in their background to make this nation a better place, right? This is the great experiment of democracy. And if you don't know its history, because you're not tied to it because it doesn't speak to you, that's that's only going to be a detriment moving forward. Absolutely. And of course, history affects present and future. And um, this may sound like a total tangent, but it's not. Uh, Gina Davis, the actress, she has an institute for film where she studies representation in film, especially gender studies. But she's, you know, branching out into all kinds of different underrepresented groups and kind of one of her sort of mottos that she spreads uh, with this organization is see it, be it. And this idea that we've seen reinforced over and over and over again in media that women do or do not do certain things uh, or that they're not present or they're not listened to. And I think that that can be very much applied to history. If we're not seeing what's happening in history, we feel like it doesn't apply to us. We feel like it's not telling the truth. We're not interested in it. And then, of course, it impacts future decisions and, and our feeling of future possibilities. Yep. I 100% agree, which is why, you know, I was so excited this year to see so many uh, history books written by women about women. Um, It's just, it's bringing in different voices. It's bringing in different perspectives. It's bringing in a, a whole new way of looking at it. Right. I mean, I even make a joke sometimes when I talk to fellow history nerds, it's like, even the word history, his story, like, how about her story? How about, <laughs> how about, their how about story? that? <laughs> yes, preach. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I agree. And I think that, you know, that's a really lovely sort of like sum up of this whole thing is just proper representation of what mm-hmm. has happened and what we hope will happen is key here. And both of these women's life stories tell that story itself. And it's, a, I just found it a really beautiful connection to make. I, I 100% agree. Um, I was so excited when you suggested to, to talk about and contrast these two lives because um, they are very important in, in their own different ways. Um, and, you know, even though Abigail is the more well-known, quote unquote, um, there's still so much that people don't know about the, their lives and their impacts, right? Um, and it's it's nice to see history hopefully making a, a a right turn, so to speak, and and kind of diving into these stories because every one that I've read thus far has been utterly fascinating, utterly fascinating, and it's it's so exciting to see where the where the field is going. Completely, I hope we can take these stories and this example of how these stories are told and just run with it, see where yes. the future takes us. Preach. So. <laughs> Well, thank you, Alicia, so much for speaking with me today. It's been a fantastic conversation. So interesting. Love your perspective on Abigail Adams and hope to talk to you again. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I love your show and I I can't, can't wait to hear how this all comes out. I hope you enjoyed this conversation about the lives of Jane Franklin and Abigail Adams. Both women stood for so many principles that I admire, but I think the through line here in their stories is to remind us all to remember the ladies. And now it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. Book of Ages is one of the most insightful and creative approaches to history that I've read. Jill Lepore goes to incredible lengths to uncover the life of Jane Franklin and to explore the deeper truths of her experience. 
The book is a fascinating lesson in colonial history, the life of Benjamin Franklin, and a woman whose life fills in the historical gaps between the two. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Alicia has a fantastic civics and coffee episode about Abigail Adams that I would highly recommend listening to. She not only lays out the facts about Abigail's life, but she also provides fascinating historical context that adds considerable weight to her accomplishments. And as Alicia recommended in the episode, Woody Holton's Abigail Adams, A Life is a great resource if you're inspired to learn more about Abigail Adams. Thanks so much for listening. You can listen to Alicia's podcast, Civics and Coffee, wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Broadly Underestimated and connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.